Hi, and thanks for joining us on Inside Maine. This is Angus King, and today we're going to be talking about an issue of interest in Maine, in our communities across the state, but also across the country. The high cost of health care and how we can control that through strategies of prevention. What is it that we can do to lower the cost, whether it, whatever the insurance is paying or you're paying, but how do we avoid disease? The cheapest medical procedure of all is the one that never happens. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. And my first guest is Dr. Anand Parekh, who is the chief medical officer at something called the Bipartisan Policy Center. That's a group here in Washington. Our former Senator Olympia Snow is a prominent member that tries to come up with bipartisan solutions to common problems around the country. And of course, one of those is health care. He's also associated with the University of Michigan, Johns Hopkins University, Johns Hopkins University, and spent 10 years at Health and Human Services uh, here in Washington. So, Dr. Preck, th thank you so much for taking the time to uh, come up to the Capitol today and talk about uh, these issues. And I think the first thing is, and you and I were in Bangor together a couple of weeks ago, we're seeing for the first time a decline in indicators of national health. Tell me about that. That's right, Senator, and thank you for your leadership. It, it's great to be here with you. Uh, you know, it's pretty remarkable. This is the first time in 100 years in American history since World War I where the country is experiencing three consecutive years of a decline in life expectancy. Uh, pretty remarkable when you think about that in the 21st century. Uh, no other industrialized country is really facing this. And, and the reason for that uh, are really three, uh, there are three reasons. The first is what we call diseases of despair, um, uh, drug abuse, the opioid epidemic, um, um, alcohol abuse, suicides. Uh, these are conditions where the prevalence has really risen, uh, and a lot of Americans are suffering from these conditions, a lot of Mainers as well. Uh, the second is the continuing obesity epidemic uh, in this country. And then the third is really what's called the plateauing in the, in the decline of death from cardiovascular disease. So we've seen a lot of decline over the last couple of dec decades. We're seeing a plateauing there. Mainers are also experiencing that same phenomenon. So all three of these reasons have now led uh, for the first time, again, in 100 years for life expectancy to decline three years in a row. I think that characterization you made at the beginning, a disease of despair. Uh, the other way I've heard it put is that it's a lack of hope. And people, particularly with drugs, alcohol, it's an escape. It, 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 there is a, a definite connection between uh, economic opportunity, economic uh, uh, empowerment, um, social issues and these health issues. And it was actually in 2015 when two Princeton economists first coined the term uh, diseases of despair. Uh, but there's been a significant increase in mortality um, from drug abuse, alcohol abuse, and, and suicide. And, and particularly if you look at the last decade, uh, in New England states and the upper Midwest, we've seen the most dramatic increases in all three of those areas. Which is a, a tragedy for our communities and, and families. It's, it's, uh, and and Maine and Upper New England has had a terrible, a terrible time with the with the drug drug epidemic. But also, uh, we've had. Uh, I'm going to talk with my next guest about this: an epidemic of loneliness, and that leads to despair, and that leads to depression, and and these kinds of diseases. But let's let's talk about prevention. Let's talk about how to how to, not necessarily prevention for drug abuse or those kinds of things, but how do we lead healthier lives and therefore lower our own and the country's costs of health care. Senator, uh, uh, your spotlighting this issue is so important uh, because the CDC estimates that every year 
250,000 Americans are dying potentially preventable deaths. So those are deaths from heart attacks and strokes and cancers, respiratory disease, falls. unintentional disease, falls. And, and sure, we all know that what we need to do to re reduce those deaths are to eat healthy and be physically active and to moderate our weight, to moderate our alcohol intake, and, and, and to not abuse substances. What we're learning is that personal responsibility is important, but it's not enough. We need to change policies, systems, and the environment to make the healthier choice the easier choice. Yeah, but we, the government can't prescribe that everyone gets up, right. up in the morning and do sit-ups and jumping jacks. Right. That's so right. what, what, how, do we, how, do we, how do we engage the government and people in their individual choices? Yeah, yeah. So, so it's really about getting all sectors on board, certainly healthcare providers. And I can speak as a physician. We were always trained uh, on the treatment side of the equation. Right. No one really taught us much on the prevention side. There's a lot that healthcare. Well, in fact, our whole the whole economics of healthcare is about treatment, not prevention. That's exactly right. Exactly right. The vast majority of this 3.6 trillion dollars that we spend in America on healthcare uh, is, in fact, from preventable chronic diseases. Uh, and so there is certainly a health care role. But I would argue, uh, Senator, there's also a, a role role for our schools, for our workplaces, uh, for our homes and our, our, our communities. Uh, Really, what we need to do is ensure that prevention is front and center, not only for healthcare, but where we live, learn, uh, work, play, and pray. So where we live, in the homes, from cradle to grave, whether it's falls prevention, whether it's home visiting programs, where we learn, making sure our schools, uh, our kids take advantage of school breakfasts and lunches and, and making sure their school health clinics, uh, where we work, make, making sure there are worksite wellness programs. Uh, where we play, making sure that there's space for physical activity, transportation, and where we pray in terms of spiritual health. So I think it's really, it's not just government. It's all sectors of society. It's public sector. It's private sector. Well, around here, there's a lot of people every now and then we say we've got this big problem. It's got to be an all-of-government solution. What we're really talking about is an all-of-society solution. Absolutely. And, and by the way, I, I probably should have brought this up at the very beginning. You, you mentioned 3.6 trillion. It's a pretty easy uh, division. We have 330 million people in the country. That's $10,000 per year per person, man, woman, and child in the United States. And that's almost twice most other parts of the world, uh, the highest in the world by far. So what we're talking about here is a peculiarly American problem in terms of what we're spending for health care, regardless of who pays, whether it's Medicare, Medicaid, private insurance, Medicare for all, uh, it's, it's still going to break us unless we get a handle on the cost. And that's where I think prevention has a role to play. That's absolutely right. And I'll add one more disappointing fact. It's, it's estimated, a recent study just confirmed this, that 25 to 30 percent of that $3.6 trillion tab actually doesn't go to improve health outcomes. It's actually waste. And waste is now the, the word that, that's, that's being used. So that includes uh, administrative costs, that includes failures of care delivery, failures of care coordination, over-treatment, fraud and, fraud and abuse. Uh, there are a wide variety of areas uh, where we can do better, not only to improve health outcomes, but to save money. And you're right, prevention has an important role there, absolutely. Well, let's talk about some strategies. What, what, where do we go? What, uh, let's talk individually first, yeah. uh, and, and not to sound too preachy, but... Yeah. You know, a lot of these problems, what is it? I've seen estimates as high as 50% of our health care costs are preventable. That's absolutely right. Um, again, the majority of our health care costs are from chronic conditions. Um, 
whether that's cardiovascular disease or cancer, respiratory disease. And uh, in fact, most of these are preventable. Take type 2 diabetes in this country. There are 100 million Americans who have either prediabetes or diabetes. Um, diabetes is, is absolutely type 2 diabetes linked to the obesity epidemic. And so issues related to eating healthy and being physically active, uh, uh, moderating your weight are all critical. Uh, so there are individual things that we can do. I think what we're learning is that there are policy and societal things that we can do uh, to make sure that folks have access to healthy foods and, and, and have access to uh, places where they can be physically active. Um, and so I think it's, again, a whole-of-society approach to address these perspectives. Well, and, and part of it is incentives as well. I mean, I've talked to companies that are self-insured, that cover their – they don't have a, a carrier. They pay the insurance costs of their employees. And they are very active in wellness programs. They pay for gym memberships. They require their their workers, if they smoke, to pay an extra premium because there's a demonstrated higher cost. And it seems to me that that has to be part of it too, in, in, in incentives to uh, uh, live better and live longer and healthier. Uh, absolutely. And it's probably incentives as well as disincentives a co- a, a uh, a combination there. Most large employers in this country offer worksite wellness programs. I will tell you, there is a little bit of a disconnect between the anecdotal good stories we hear uh, and the published research and the evidence. And it turns out that that how you implement a worksite wellness program is pretty important. Who do you target? What are the interventions? What are the incentives, disincentives? What's, what's sort of the, the duration of, of these programs? So we need more innovation there. I will tell you, um, Senator, that a lot of small employers, however, um, they don't. They are, they're not offering worksite wellness programs as much as larger employers. So whatever we can do to incentivize um, small employers to provide uh, these programs to employees could be very helpful as well. Well, one of the problems, if you're in a big insurance group of 100,000 people, it, there's no benefit to your company to pay too much attention to wellness because you're going to be paying the average premium for everybody. And and I think that we got to figure that out too. And in other areas of insurance, there are ratings according to the the wellness, if you will, of the of the population, and we got to. There's no single answer to this. I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, and I think one thing that could help with that. You're talking here about the churn, people moving jobs, switching insurers. What's the incentive for an employer and insurer to, um, to to really focus on prevention and wellness when uh, the individual or, or or the employee might might leave? And exactly. Will, so so and and I think that's why in a particular community you need to get everybody on board. So if you get all the insurers on board, all the employers on board then that churn matters less because the new employees you get are, are already going to be on the prevention band, bandwagon. So whatever we can do uh, in communities across Maine, across the country to get all employers on board, get all insurers on board, uh, that will, I think, help help mitigate some of the issues related well, to churn. Well, you, you touched on this, and I think this is terribly important. We don't have a health care system. We have a sick care system. And the whole setup of hospitals, providers, doctors, is all geared toward treating, providing treatment, and there's no financial incentive to provide prevention counseling. Is that, how, do we, how do we change that? Hey. I'd, rather pay, I'd rather pay my insurance company $8,000 a year to keep me healthy and, and avoid having to have various health care interventions. Yeah. You know, when, when Medicare and Medicaid were set up in 1965, it, it was really a, a program um, to help insure and then also reimburse um, health care professionals for health care interventions in health care settings. 
and it has always, for 50 plus years, been really focused on treatment. It's really only over the last couple of decades that prevention has really cropped up uh, there and still- But Medicare doesn't pay for prevention. And, 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 and um, a little bit at a time, Medicare has started to get, uh, getting interested in this space. So for example, now Medicare does play, pay for um, uh, immunizations. Uh, they do pay for um, uh, cancer preventive screenings. Um, however, if you look at the uptake rate of a lot of these, pretty low. And the reason for that is sort of a lack of, of, of education, um, a, a lack of communication, as well as providers, exactly to your point, Senator, not having really the incentives um, uh, that they need to provide this care. Um, many other areas, Medicare, you're right, particularly for community interventions, uh, they don't pay, pay for it. Falls prevention is a great, great example. Well, that's uh, one of the things I, I'm taking away from our meeting up in Bangor where we had wonderful three hours with people from all over the state talking about this subject. But one of the things I'm coming away with is Medicare payment reform so that Medicare does pay for things like fall prevention. If you if you can spend a couple of thousand dollars putting grab bars in, an, in a senior's house, you can do a lot of houses for the cost of one broken hip. So I think payment reform is, is absolutely important. There is also another tool that can be used. So we hear this ter term a lot called value-based healthcare transformation. So, so healthcare is changing. Instead of just paying for the quantity of services, we want to pay for the quality and outcomes. And really, the, the, the currency of value-based value healthcare transformation are quality metrics. So another way you can get at it is really looking at the metrics that providers are judged by and using that as sort of leverage in terms of incentives well, for the, prevention. Well, the, the classic example of unintended consequences is the, for a while the metric was, is are you leaving the office pain-free? That's right. Which encouraged drugs. That's right. That's and right. The opioid uh, epidemic. The, yeah, opioid the fifth epidemic, vital sign. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, one of the vital signs was yeah. pain, and we have a disaster uh, nationwide. Um, Final thoughts. If you had a magic wand up here, what would you what would you do? Give me a couple of priorities. I think across the board, when not it that I have a magic wand, by the way, but <laughs> well, I think across the board, uh, in terms of, of prevention, uh, we need to lift up uh, what I called Senator the four P's. If we want to improve the health of the population, need to invest in prevention, um, public health, and primary care, which is really for for health care and sort of medicine, probably the, the, the best opportunity to integrate um, prevention. Um, I think we need to slowly through payment reform, um, actually not slowly, aggressively through payment reform, as well as looking at, at quality metrics, incentivize healthcare professionals um, um, to, to, to really prioritize prevention. Uh, and then we need to really get all sectors, again, as you said, it's all of society on board because there's a rule. There's a role for schools. There's a role for businesses. There's a role um, inside the home uh, as well. Well, I, I really appreciate that. And I think uh, what we're going to continue to talk about is that, well, we need we need reform because we're already at almost 20 percent of GDP for healthcare, way more than anywhere else in the world. And uh, it's a and if we can do if we can have better health care for less, what's not to like? Absolutely. And we'll exactly. continue to work on it. Doctor. Thank you so much for joining Thank us. Thank you for your leadership, Senator. Thank you. 
I want to thank Dr. Parak for joining us. I think he's got a very important national perspective and uh, a lot of insights. Great to have him with us. And after this short break, come on back. We're going to be with Laurie Parham, who's the executive director of AARP in Maine. She only represents 230,000 people with some ideas about what we can do in Maine about the issue of high health care costs, how we can do a better job of prevention to lower those costs and have people lead a healthier life. Stay with us on Inside Maine. Welcome back to Inside Maine. This is Angus King, and we're talking today about a very important topic, which is health prevention. How can we be healthier and lower our health bills at the same time? And I think that's something that's important to families and individuals across the state as well as across the country. Uh, with us now is Lori Parham, who is the uh, I don't know what her title is, Grand Poobah, President, Executive <laughs> Director of AARP, uh, a little small organization in Maine that only has 230,000 members. Uh, of course, it's a wonderful organization that represents seniors across the state. And, Lori, I know health care is a huge issue for seniors, everything from Medicare policy to drugs and uh uh, home being homebound. Uh, talk to me about some of the special health care issues that that you see, and and uh, think about it in terms of of prevention. How can we how can we make our seniors healthier and not spend as much money at the same time? Sure, Senator. It's great to be with you today. And um, there are a lot of things that we can do in the prevention space uh, for older Mainers, for old, older Americans. You know, you don't have to start when you're 18. There are still things you can do when you're 50, 60, 75, and 80 that are really important. And we spend a lot of time focusing on this uh, with our partner organizations across Maine. Uh, and there are a few areas I'd love to talk with you about today. One is uh, social isolation. And so much is tied in with social isolation. And we're hearing these days that it, it's almost as bad as smoking or obesity in terms of life expectancy. And so we really work to um, see what we can do to connect to people and really get them active in their community. And uh, by doing that, by giving people options to get connected, uh, to meet with others, to get out, to move, uh, you can start to address a number of issues kind of all at one time. Well, that's amazing what you just said, that isolation can be as important for health as obesity or some of the other health issues that we normally think of. And and that, I, I hear this everywhere I go in Maine. I, I, I'll never forget being at a roundtable in Machias, and there was a lady there that said, we have seniors in our region, in our community, who the only person they see in a week is the Meals on Wheels driver. I mean, that so is a true. stunning yeah. uh, uh, statement. And, and you heard uh, Dr. Parak talk about uh, diseases of despair, and that's really what we're talking about here. Yes, and uh, we find we spend a lot of time focused on the social determinants of health and those factors, environmental and economic, that can really impact uh, health outcomes and in a negative way. And social isolation is one of these key factors. 
the more isolated you are, uh, the more likely you aren't getting the nutrition you need, you're not getting that exercise, you're not getting that companionship, you're well, not talking with others. Yeah, m- mental stimulation is part of it as well, exactly. just just stimulation. Exactly. I mean, you go to a place like the Cohen Center at, at lunchtime, and there are 50 or 100 people there, and, and they're interacting, but you think about the ones, and, you know, we can't talk about this without talking about transportation. That's one of the problems. Well, that's so true. In Maine, it's, we are a far-flung state, um, so rural, and even even in what are called our urban centers, sometimes public transit isn't the best. And the further north and west you go, uh, the more difficult it is. And that's why we're seeing local residents really uh, take action where they feel the state or federal government hasn't been able to, to start to Take it up, you know, take take it up, take the issues up, and start doing something locally through volunteer transportation programs, through walking programs, to really try to address the physical and mental health issues that are impacting Maine's oldest citizens. Well, and here's here's a little way uh, where we might be able to help down here that I've learned, and uh, I was up in Presque Isle a couple of weeks ago, and the the reimbursement rate for volunteer drivers. Uh, the payment for for their using their car is 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 too low, uh, and it basically, if you're a volunteer driver and you're giving up your time, you shouldn't also have to subsidize the the service when you're driving to to see someone or deliver meals on wheels. So that's a that's a kind of practical thing that I'm hoping that we can do something about down here, uh, because it, it it has to rest upon volunteers in many ways. Well, and that, that's so true, and, and, and so much of this is resting on volunteers, whether it's volunteers delivering meals. You mentioned the importance of the Meals on Wheels program, not just for nutrition, but also for connecting to people. And I've volunteered for the program in the past, and you can see just that smile on the face, and it's not just because they're getting the hot meal. They're just so happy to have somebody to talk to. And, and it also, um, these volunteers can become an early warning system, too, if there is an issue going on in the home, if an individual is unsafe. But so much of this is built on a volunteer infrastructure and a nonprofit infrastructure. And uh, as Maine continues to get older, those are issues that we're going to have to continue to look at and make sure that the infrastructure is there. Well, one model I've seen, and in fact, we have it in our, my hometown of Brunswick, is um the, the building or the development or the refurbishment of, of, a, of a nice place where people can gather uh, and uh, just, a, just a physical place, a, a town uh, somewhere in the town, whether it's sponsored by the town or a local nonprofit or, or whoever, again, uh, giving seniors an opportunity to have a place where they're not by themselves all day. We are seeing a real resurgence in, especially in very small communities uh, that we work with as part of our age-friendly network, of um, redoing community centers or building new community centers and really making them multi-generational, which I love, um, so that you've um, you've got um, younger folks and older folks coming together and sharing space around activities. The other important partner in all of this is our libraries. They play such an important role in Bangor. Uh, we have volunteers who have a couple game nights during the week, and those have continued to grow as folks come out to a place they know and get together with others. And it's just that companionship, and you're using your brain a little too, and that's a good thing. Um, but, yes, those community centers are so important. Well, it's a great idea to use the libraries because many, many towns have them, and it's a 
it's a uh, it's a natural. You don't have to build a new space. You may just take one room and put some chairs and a table and and a few donuts. Although I I don't know if we're talking about health prevention if donuts is the answer, but um, we'll let that one go. Uh, <laughs> um, what about uh, the what other issues do you do you are you dealing with to try to uh, to try to tackle this problem of of uh, uh, prevention and and making uh, making lives uh, both healthier and trying to control the cost of things like Medicare. So we spend a lot of time focused on long term services and supports, or what we often call home and community based services. And uh, we know from our members and um, from older Americans who we've polled year after year after year that they would prefer to stay at home and in the communities they love. And this is where there are those opportunities for being connected to others and being engaged. And uh, we also know uh, from a a financing perspective that it costs a lot less money uh, to serve people at home and in the community. And so looking at, we have a system that incentivizes under Medicaid uh, for long-term care, nursing home care. And there is often a time when an individual and a family has to make the tough decision uh, for an individual to go into a nursing home. But we could incentivize that care in the community, that um, the eligibility, so that individuals could be served at home. And that uh, we are looking at a, a continuum of care um, um, uh, across payers that really looked at, you mentioned um, earlier, fall prevention and what we could do to invest in um, small things like grab bars and how much less that would cost in a hip replacement surgery, not to mention uh, the number of readmissions that often go with a surgery like that. And so that's where we're spending a lot of time. What can we be doing in the community that costs less, that gives um, people homemaker companion services or um, make sure that the home is, is set and ready to go, offers transportation to other than medical appointments. Uh, and I love to talk about my grandmother and the importance of getting her hair done once a week. Those are the, those are the places where we could do more in the community and save a lot of money. Well, and and you know another issue that this there's all kinds of overlaps here of, of of uh, you know one of one of the issues that is an overlap is is broadband. A, an obvious thing in a state like Maine is better telehealth. People being able to uh, not have to drive a long way to get to a, a tertiary hospital, but to be able to be to interact with medical professionals. Um, uh, over the internet, but that requires broadband. You got to have uh, good service, and and of course, in many rural areas of Maine, we don't have it. So, that's something I think one of the most important things we can do in Maine, not only for healthcare but also uh, for our economy. I I have a friend who's recovering, an elderly friend who's recovering from uh, pneumonia. She'd hate it if she heard me refer to her as elderly. Um, but I I could talk to her the other the other I talked to her the other day on FaceTime on my telephone and she could see me and I could see her and it was really a, a meaningful interaction more so than just an ordinary phone call and that kind of thing is easy today if you have the connectivity. There is no excuse that Maine has not done more to expand broadband. Uh, I, I, I we are with you 100% on that issue. I'm a long distance caregiver for my mother-in-law. The value of the video chat and being able to put eyes on her on a regular basis when we're so far away from her, it's 
just means, to your point, it means so much more. The interaction is so much more powerful, and we have got to get that done. And, and to your point, it's good for it'll impact social isolation. It'll help with health care. It'll help with the economy. It will help with entrepreneurialism. And, and so it's, it's a win-win and a real no-brainer. Well, there's, there's another piece of this that's important in terms of health care and seniors, and that is we have a worker a drastic worker shortage in Maine right now. As you know, in the healthcare field, there's a shortage of nurses, a shortage of CNAs, doctors, teachers in the schools. I mean, every business that I talk to doesn't have enough workers. One possible source of those workers is seniors who want to work, uh, who are are able-bodied or, or can deal with the healthcare issues and then uh, can spend some time. And I think we have to rethink work in the sense that it's for it's not nine to five, five days a week. Uh, it may be more part-time. It may be half days because there's a huge talent pool out there uh, that we need, and we've got to figure out how to accommodate them and get them into the workforce if they want to be there. You know, we, we throw around the word innovation a lot, but to your point, this is a, this is a space where we truly could and need to be innovative. We know there are people over 50, people over 65 who want to continue working, whether to stay active and to be able to give back or because they need to. And uh, there's a lot of knowledge there. There's talent. And it's uh, there's so much opportunity. Healthcare isn't a nine-to-five job. Long-term care isn't a nine-to-five job. And so that flexibility um, to, to bring in people, like you said, part-time um, or seasonally, there are def- we need to look at this um, because the, the crisis is only going to get worse. Well, let's talk about Medicare for a minute. We, we've got to have I, – I, Medicare provides, as I understand it, a, a wellness visit uh, and immunizations on a, on a regular basis. But as, as uh, uh, the doctor mentioned, Dr. Parekh mentioned, a lot of people don't take, it up, take, uh, take advantage of those programs. And uh, somehow organizations like yours and people with a, with a bully pulpit like mine have to, have to try to encourage people to take advantage of the programs that are available. We do, and that consumer education is so important, and and it can be difficult. It can be tough to reach uh, everyone we need to reach. We're in open enrollment right now, and we spend a lot of time reminding individuals about open enrollment. Um, It's so important to take a proactive role in those decisions. I was, again, from a a distance uh, helping my mother-in-law as she is preparing for the same uh, you know, the challenge is for a lot of folks who don't have someone to help them out or um, or don't know where to turn, how we get to those folks. And, and that's where uh, the local agencies come in and are, are such an important part of the community here in Maine, our area agencies on aging, uh, the community action agencies, our health centers. And yeah, it's um, often it's nice. they, a- they have experts, they have people who can navigate you through that system that's, that's, that are really good and and it's it's complicated for anybody, and and uh, I I think that's you, I'm glad you mentioned that the area agency on aging aging and the uh, community action agencies generally have people that can help uh, seniors uh, get through that. And and again, we're going back to the theme of prevention. Uh, if we can catch problems earlier in the process, uh, they're easier to treat. People are healthier, and uh, much less expensive for uh, Medicare, private insurance, or or whoever. Laurie, uh, we're just about out of time. I'll ask you the same question uh, I asked Dr. Parekh. Uh, give you the magic wand. What are a couple of things we can do to help? 
And I would say, going back to this issue of uh, long-term services and supports and an emphasis on home-based care rather than institutional settings and looking at incentives uh, through Medicare and Medicaid. And also, I'm quite passionate about integrating care for dual eligibles. These are uh, uh, most frail, most poor individuals who qualify for Medicare and Medicaid, and we could be doing more to integrate their health care and their long-term care needs, which will be better for them and better uh, for the financial system. As well. Terrific goals. Those are ones we've been working on for a long time, and uh, we're going to continue to do it. But I sense that we're at a moment now where, if nothing else, the cost of health care in this country compared with other places is driving us toward the kind of innovation that you're talking about. So hopefully the moment is right, and we're going to keep working on it. Lori, thanks for what you're doing, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Senator. It was a pleasure. Again, I want to thank Dr. Anand Parekh and Lori Parham for visiting with us today talking about this crucial issue of health prevention. How can we lead healthier lives and spend less money on health care at the same time? I think it can be done. We're going to continue to work on it. And I'd like to have you share your ideas on this important topic with my office at king.senate.gov. Look forward to hearing from you and be with you next time. Thanks a lot. This is Angus King, and we'll talk to you again.